morning I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4. And we're coming uh, this morning to talk about the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Now, uh, someone pointed out to me that I left out something, which is the genealogy at the end of Luke chapter 3. I haven't necessarily eliminated entirely, and I didn't forget that it was there, but as I was looking at it and saying, Lord, is there a sermon in this long list of names? Um, I have to tell you that I didn't get any particular impression in that direction. I'm sure that there could be sermons in there, but um, as I read over it, they, they didn't jump off the page at me that way. And then I had the thought, well, we, we may come back to some of these points a little later, but we're fast-forwarding to Luke chapter 4, and this takes us to the time after the baptism of Jesus Christ when the Scripture says that he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and was uh, tempted in that period of time. Now, a couple things I want to point out to us that we really need all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, to gain the fullest picture of this. Um, there's no contradiction between the accounts. And the Holy Spirit uh, has inspired all of them, and yet each uh, gospel writer has a little different uh, perspective on it, and because of that, they give us additional information. And so when you put all three of them together, you get a much fuller picture of what was going on uh, in Jesus' life. I also want to say that this is probably one of the most misunderstood and difficult to understand passages in the life of Jesus Christ. Most people completely don't get what's going on here. Uh, we have a faulty... Christology, and that word simply means a study of the person of Christ. And biblical doctrine is very important. If you don't have a good theology, a good Christology, to where you know what the Bible says about Jesus, it is going to affect how you respond and react in many circumstances of life. And this morning, since we're talking about the temptations, if you don't have a really good understanding of who Jesus is in this experience, uh, you're going to potentially make some serious errors in your own life uh, because you, you're either going to be frustrated with God, or you're going to be running from God, or uh, you're going to have other feelings toward God that are not helpful. It's crucial that we understand the true nature of Jesus Christ in order to uh, live and make the right kinds of choices properly. Um, you know, if you don't have very clear in your mind who he is. The way you think in your heart governs your actions. 
The scripture says that. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And if you've got bad theology in, in your mind, then you're going to make wrong choices, which are going to result in experiences in life that are going to take you away from God instead of to Him. How we think is the foundation of everything that flows out of our lives. And so this morning as we study this, and by the way, we're going to spend three Sundays on this passage because it's so important and there's so much here. But as we study this this morning, I want you to realize that we've got to get a handle on what was happening to Jesus in the wilderness in order to understand how to deal with temptation in our own lives and to avail ourselves of the help that God really gives. So, without uh, any further introductory comments, let's look at the scripture passage, Luke chapter 4, follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and all of its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished, every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So he wasn't done with him. There was more to come uh, in the future. Now, as we consider the passage, as I said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each give us a little bit different uh, information regarding this. Uh, and when we look at these first verbs, it introduced the passage, and I'm not going to go into all the details of the tenses, but um, let me just say that Matthew and Luke use the same verb to describe Jesus being led into the wilderness. However, Matthew simply reports the fact. This happened. Uh, it's kind of like looking through the family picture album, and, uh, you know, you're looking through it with your kids or with your grandkids or whatever, and you're flipping through and you say, ah, that's that 59 Ford I used to have. And there's a picture of it. It's a snapshot. And you used to have it, and there it is. Just simple statement. Uh, as opposed to Luke, who kind of gives us the Super 8 movie version, you know, where you see the motion picture and you see the Ford driving. <laughs> And you say, wow, that that's what used to be what we used to drive. And here's a 
motion picture going on. Luke wants to emphasize the idea that not only was he led by the Spirit into the wilderness, but he was led around by the Spirit. He continued to be led throughout this whole 40-day period that the Holy Spirit was directing and guiding uh, all of his uh, choices and decisions for that experience. Mark adds a little different flavor by choosing a verb that brings to us the idea of him being compelled. It's like the Holy Spirit was driving him into the wilderness, that he was impelling him to go. And he had this a need to be there. Now, the reason for that, and we're going to get into this more next week, but the reason for that is that Jesus, as the second Adam, needed to go through certain experiences that the first Adam went through. And one of those experiences was kind of having a face-off with the devil in the area of some crucial temptations. And the Gospel writers kind of make it plain that the reason the Holy Spirit led him in the wilderness was in order to face these particular temptations. This was a part of the plan. It does not imply that Jesus had never been tempted before this. He, he grew up in a normal family, and uh, somewhere after we get the snapshot of him at the age of 12 in the temple, and we see Mary and Joseph there looking for him, after that we never hear another word about Joseph. Uh, we assume, and tradition has it, that he died and passed off the scene somewhere. Uh, Mary and his other brothers and sisters are needing to be cared for, and Jesus is the eldest and the firstborn son. And it, as in uh, most families of that time, it became his responsibility to take over the family business and to provide for the family. So we learn that Jesus became a carpenter like Joseph, and he took over that responsibility. And so it's, it's inconceivable that for 30 years, as a child growing up, as a teenager, and then as an inheritor of the responsibility and business of the family, that he had never been tempted. I'm sure that he had faced temptation. Nor is there anything in the scripture that suggests he was not tempted after this experience. In fact, as I read and emphasized at the end of the passage in Luke, it says, so the devil left him until a more opportune time. You know, it's like, well, this didn't work, but I'll be back, and I'm going to exploit the next chance that I get. So we find that Jesus is going to face other temptations in the future. But this is special, because as Jesus is about to begin his public ministry, he's been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, and this is the dramatic confrontation that he has with the devil, much like Adam and Eve encountered with the devil in the Garden of Eden. 
And it's important that Jesus have this test, and it's important that he pass it. Mark tells us a few more things about it. Um, Mark indicates to us that the whole period of time he was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. You know, we have a tendency, I think, to look at it and say, well, he fasted for 40 days and he was communing with God. Then when the 40 days was over, wham, the temptations came. But Mark tells us that he was being led by the Holy Spirit for 40 days while being tempted by the devil for 40 days. This was an ongoing process. And Mark adds another little bit of insight when he tells us that he was in company with the wild beast. I don't know how many of you may have uh, been camping or backpacking or anything like that in true wilderness environments, uh, but when you're in the real wilderness, virgin forest or whatever like that, out in the wild country, um, it's not just raccoons and squirrels and possum that visit your campsite at night. Uh, in fact, if you're backpacking in the Smoky Mountains, you're taught how and told how to bear pack your uh, backpack and your food uh, on a line between trees because the bears will be there uh, as soon as they smell the food. And uh, Mark is making the point that Jesus was in the wilderness, nothing with him, except the clothes and sandals he was wearing, and with wild beasts. And it's kind of said in such a way that the implications are they were part of the problem in the experience. So you can imagine rounding the corner as you're trekking about uh, in the rocks and crags and whatever and coming face to face with a lion. You know, this is a heart-stopping moment. And Jesus, being a man, also had adrenal glands. And uh, I'm sure he had that rush of adrenaline like anyone would. And Mark also adds the caveat that the angels were ministering to him. And it doesn't suggest they were feeding him or anything like that, but we get the picture that he is in an environment that is hostile, that is frightening, that is dangerous, that he is under constant pressure of the enemy, and God the Father is giving him a covering uh, in terms of those wild elements by angelic powers. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to know that if you were out dealing with these trials and temptations that at least someone was going to stop the lion uh, when you encountered them? That doesn't diminish the reality of the experience, but listen... Uh, don't kid yourself, from day one, beginning with the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem, all the way through, the devil looked for every opportunity to kill Jesus, uh, to prevent him from going to the cross. Every chance he got, he was looking for an opportunity to prevent Jesus from completing his mission, to kill him off. And you can believe that he was using this opportunity to kill him as well. And the scripture says that God was providing angelic covering or, or host for that. Now, having said that, um, there are some implications from this story and some lessons that we need to learn 
that will fortify us in our times of temptation. We often have these misnomers, these misunderstandings in our mind that um, we think are biblically sound when in fact they are not. One of the misunderstandings people often have is that being led by the Holy Spirit precludes us from being led into a place of danger. Friends, being led by the Holy Spirit does not in any way preclude us from being in a dangerous place. In fact, oftentimes in the will of God, we are led into dangerous places by the Holy Spirit. As Jesus uh, said to his disciples, and he was not kidding, do not be afraid of those that can kill your body. They're not your big problem. Be afraid of those, the one who can cast your soul and spirit into hell. That's the one that you need to be concerned about. And those who kill the body are not the problem. Um, I was reminded this week of the story of Darlene Diebler Rose. Some of you uh, may have read her biography. Uh, she may be totally unheard of by many of you. But Darlene Diebler uh, was uh, the wife and uh, missionary and married to a missionary uh, in the Philippines and Indonesian area before the start of World War II. And uh, Robert Jaffrey, one of those great kind of heroes of Alliance Mission, was the field director, field chairman uh, in those years. And the Japanese were beginning to move down into that region uh, in their uh, successive <clears throat> um, invasion and control of that whole uh, string of island countries. And um, they knew the Japanese were coming. And Robert Jaffrey called the entire mission uh, group together. And uh, this is what he said to them. There was one more ship that they felt they could get out of the harbor uh, and safe passage back to America. And uh, Dr. Jaffrey got them all together and he said, listen, he said, this is a decision that you and God have to make. I am not going to make this for you. I don't even want you praying together as husband and wife. I want you to get alone with God, and I want you to find out from God if he wants you to get on that boat or not. If you get on it, uh, there will be no hard feelings and no repercussions. You're free to go. If you choose to stay, uh, we welcome you to stay, but we, I want you, each one, to, to go to God and find out what decision you should make. The next day, as he assembled the missionaries again to find out their choices, uh, he discovered that every single one of them in prayer had been convinced by God that they were to stay and not take the, the ship passage out of the region. What they did not realize until later on was that that ship was attacked by the Japanese and sunk, and every single person on board died. And so in the direction and leadership of God, every one of the missionaries was spared. However, they were spared to end up in Japanese prison camps. And Darlene Diebler's husband died in Japanese uh, uh, incarceration, as did Robert Jaffrey.
She herself experienced solitary confinement for many, many months at a time. She experienced uh, periods of deprivation in the, in the camps, and her health was broken. It took her over two years when she was finally re- released and came back to this country. It took her over two years to recover. You may be interested to know that after her recovery, she remarried and went back to spend the rest of her life as a missionary in that region. She said one of the sustaining things that kept her going through all of her trials was that she had prayed about it and God had led her to stay and she knew she was there in the will of God. Friends, sometimes when you are led of the Holy Spirit, you are in places of great danger. And do not think that being led of God is going to exclude us from any risk. It simply isn't. But it will put us in the place where God wants us to be. And, you know, and I, I would very much rather die in the will of God than out of it. I want to be where he wants me to be. We're all going to die sometime. I want to be where he wants me to be in that moment. Also, being led by the Holy Spirit does not exclude being led into a place of temptation. People sometimes follow the will of God only to find that their life gets really tough. And that temptation gets worse. And they have even more struggle and difficulty. Why does it surprise us that following the will of God makes us an enemy of our enemy? It puts us in his gun sights. It really agitates the devil when you are following hard after Jesus Christ. You become more of a threat to him. And make no mistake, this is a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual battle warfare environment and when you are in the will of God and following the lead of the Holy Spirit you are actually more hated by the devil than ever before and don't think that he's not going to try to bring you down by hook or by crook he's going to look for opportunities and if that means bringing you into temptation and getting you to sin and discredit your life so be it he doesn't care He wants to destroy you however he can. And so uh, sometimes we think, well, I'm in the will of God. Why is it so hard? Or even worse, we think it's so hard. Therefore, I must not be in the will of God. Friends, sometimes the opposition is the proof positive that we're in the will of God. Don't be surprised by that. And don't assume that being in the will of God is going to exclude you from a time of temptation. But note the critical distinction. The scripture says he was led by the Spirit and tempted by the devil. James reminds us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Because God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any person. 
We are never tempted by God. We are tempted by the devil. He is the one who provides the temptation. In following and pursuing the will of God, the devil will oppose us, and he is the source of the problem. If you don't have that clear in your mind, when you're tempted, the, tempt, the, the, the temptation, yes, it's another temptation. When you're tempted, you will be inclined to begin to feel uh, yucky and dirty and, and defiled and frustrated, and you want to put some distance between you and God. Nothing could be worse. That's the time when you need to draw near to God. You need to cling to Him. We need to come into His presence. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, and some of you still aren't going to believe me, and you're going to keep making erroneous statements. I know that because I keep hearing them. But I'm going to say it one more time. I'll probably say it a few more times, but I'm going to say it one more time this morning. Many people say, the devil can't read your mind. Of course he can. Of course he can. You know, if I'm running out of this room and I try to go right through there to get outside, I'm going to hit that brick wall hard and go down. But if a demon's running out of this room... He's not even going to notice the block wall. Demons have no boundaries concerning physical obstructions. My skull doesn't prevent spirits from passing through it. And my skull and my brain do not pre prevent the devil from getting in there and reading my thoughts. Think about it. You know, when you're presented with temptation, some temptation comes at you and it begins to... Uh, to, to work on you, and, and you say, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to do this. And then you hear, oh, but it feels so good. I mean, you always get pleasure out of this. No, I'm not going to do this. Well, listen, no one's going to know right now. You're in a situation where it's not going to be found out. You're having a conversation. Who are you talking to? You're talking to yourself? You're not talking to yourself. Someone is marshalling arguments against your resolve. Who is that person? You are dealing with demonic spirits who are trying to trip you up and pull you down. There's an argument going on. Friends, every temptation begins in the mind. If you don't have anything mental going on, you're not dealing with temptation. Every temptation starts in the mind. Think about that one. But I don't care what it is. Something is going on in your head when you're wrestling with a choice between the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And as you wrestle with that decision, however brief or however long, the argument that is going back and forth is being held with someone. Now, um, I quoted to you that passage in James that says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt anyone. 
And then we quote the second part and think that it's exclusive. For a person is tempted when they are carried away by their own lust. And we read that part and we say, oh, so that must be the source of temptation. Temptation is my fault. Temptation is my problem. I'm tempted when my own lust carry me away. Well, yes, you are tempted when your lusts carry you away. But that's not the only way that you're tempted. James is making a statement that is not exclusive. It just happens to be a component. When you're tempted, don't assume God's doing it. And when you're tempted, frequently it's because you're carried away by your own lust. But friends, there is another source of temptation outside of yourself. Listen, Adam did not have a sin nature when he was tempted to violate the will of God. And Jesus did not have a sin nature when he was tempted in the wilderness. So you can be tempted without any sin nature whatsoever. Just by virtue of being human and facing the devil. You can be tempted by him. And temptation does not automatically implicate you as the sinner. The temptation is the battle. It only becomes sin when you engage it and make a choice to go that direction. And the enemy uses this in our lives. We get into a situation of temptation, and, and what does he say? <laughs> See? See how nasty you are? See how dirty you are? See how wicked you are? How could you have a relationship with God? How could God love you? Look at, look at the filth in your own mind. What's wrong with you? You know, you're, you're really a loser. Don't you ever hear those kinds of things when you're having this discussion? <laughs> you know, I hear these kinds of things. And what's the point? He sets us up, plants thoughts in our mind, accuses us of thinking them, tells us what a jerk we are, and says, God doesn't want anything to do with you. And so we say, you know, I better go over here and try to handle this myself because I must be really upsetting God right now. Nothing could be further from the truth. God says, I love you. I, I know everything that's going on in you. I even know when it is your fault. And I know when it's not. But you need to come to me. You need to cling to me. You need to come to me. Don't let the enemy drive the wedge. You need me now more than ever. Listen, there's another passage of Scripture that Paul writes when he says, God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear. But with every temptation, he will make a way of escape that we can endure it. And so when you're tempted, there's always help. There's always help. And God wants to give it. He doesn't want to drive you away and, and in your guilt make you feel shame and push you away from his presence. He wants to pull you in and help you and give you strength. And so don't come under the illusion that every time you're tempted, it's your fault. It may not be your fault. I could, I could go into all kinds of, of things this morning. I had counseling training. I remember being taught about transference and counter-transference. But one of the things that, 
that, that counselors need to learn right off the bat is when someone comes into their office and sits down and begins to talk and you start having feelings come up inside of you. You know, they may be all kind of feelings. Everybody always thinks, well, they have these sexual feelings. But no, they don't have to be sexual feelings. They could remind you of your mother, and you could get frustrated yourself. You know, they could remind you of something else. They could put you in another seat. You have these feelings come up. And you have to ask yourself the question, where are these coming? If I never had this thought before this person walked into my room, where is it coming from? It's not my problem. They're projecting it. It's coming out of them. There's something, now it may not be 100% of the case, but you've got to discern between that. But my point is, you can be in all kinds of situations where temptations and thoughts and trials and all kinds of problems do not come from you. Don't own them. Don't own them. Go to God. Let him analyze your heart. You don't know your own heart. You can't figure these things out, but God knows, and he can sort it out. And, and, and if God brings conviction, then you can deal with it and clear it up. And if God brings affirmation, then there's strength and support and encouragement. But turn to God in every case. Don't assume every temptation comes out of your own wickedness. And despite the trials and temptations, as well as the dangers of the wilderness, notice that Jesus was cared for by the angels and that the Father never left him alone. We need to get firmly fixed in our mind the promise of Jesus, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. I will always be there for you. I will always be available to you. I will never forsake you. You know, draw near to me because I'm always there. The wilderness temptations serve multiple purposes. Uh, next week we're going to get a little more deeply into some of the temptations themselves and their nature. But one of the things I want to highlight this morning is notice that the greatest trilogy of temptation came when Jesus was the weakest. He had been fasting for 40 days. He had been in the wilderness for 40 days. He was tired. He had been beaten up on for 40 days. He was at the end of his rope, so to speak. And this is when Satan pulled out the big guns. You know, survey after survey over the decades have shown that pastors who are honest in answering them will tell you that their greatest moment of temptation usually comes on Sunday evening. There's a reason for that. It's like Elijah, who had this tremendous battle with the prophets of Baal, slayed 400 of them, you know, won the battle, called fire down from heaven, and then what is he doing? He's running for his life from Jezebel. You know, he's burnt out, he's exhausted, he's weary, and here's the moment when the enemy comes at him and Jezebel says, if you're not like one of these prophets by this time tomorrow... And this great prophet of God, who just called fire out of heaven, is running for his life. What? What? Because he's vulnerable, he's exhausted, he's weak. The enemy will come at you. Listen, he doesn't play fair. He plays for keeps. 
And he wants to bring you down. And when you're weak, then you really need to cling to God. You really need to go to him. And I know, friends, that sometimes it's the last thing you feel like doing. Oh, I don't want to fight another battle. Well, you better. You better. You draw near to God. Let him go to war for you. But come into his presence. Jesus faced these temptations in his human nature. You know, there's a lot of theological debate about whether Jesus could have sinned or not. He's fully God, he's fully man, so could he have sinned? You know, that's the kind of debate that that they used to have in the Middle Ages among these brilliant theologians. How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Okay, that's not the point. The point is, whether Jesus could have sinned or not, I don't know. I'm not going to go there and argue that theologically. The Bible does not say clearly. But I will tell you this, his temptations were real. They were real, and he faced them in his human nature and human flesh. And in his humanity, he leaned upon God for the strength necessary to deal with them. And I pointed out here that his weakness is, a, is more a part of his design than it is a failure. Listen, if you're a ball of yarn, if you're a ball of yarn, you can make a beautiful afghan, but you cannot tow a car. Okay, there's nothing wrong with yarn that fails to tow a car. It just wasn't made to do it. It makes afghans and sweaters and socks and beanies, but it doesn't tow cars. Our design was to be empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. And you cannot stand against temptation on your own. You don't have that ability. You're not designed that way. You need the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of God coming alongside of you in order to resist temptation. That's how we were made. And so, in the weakness of his flesh, he faced temptation in the power of God. And you and I will only be successful when we do it the same way. Sometimes we think, well, I've got to be strong and prove to God how much I am devoted to him. Well, you just fell flat on your face. You just don't know it yet. You're on the way down. Let no man say, you know, I am strong because pride comes before the fall. And a haughty spirit before destruction. And if you think you're strong, then you're weak and you're going down. To acknowledge my need for God is the smartest place to begin. And to come to God when I need help. And so Jesus says, Come to me, those of you that are weary and heavy laden. You know, the writer of Hebrews put it this way, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every point like we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with boldness. 
to the throne of grace that we may find grace to help and mercy in our time of need. A lot of people think, oh, Jesus is so holy, he's so revered, he's so austere, I can't get near him, but and I'm not trying to diss the Catholic idea here, but I am sort of, you know, Mary's tender, she's soft, she's sweet, she understands, she can have empathy, all the saints can help me, but uh, Jesus is so distant. No, 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 no. Come straight to him with boldness. He's been there. He's faced it. He knows. And he invites you. Come straight to me and trust me. I love you. I'll meet you. I will come to your rescue. We are favored and blessed to have a great high priest who understands what we face in every way. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning, for your love for us, and I pray, Lord, that you would, as we go out of here this morning, minister to us in your powerful love that you really, really care. You really know. You really understand. And we can come to you for grace and help and mercy in our time of need.